Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you after yesterday's all-crazy fair. Uh, Jim, uh, it's... Well, not technically one of our three martinis today, although we will talk about uh, a certain aspect of January 6th and our crazy uh, martini today. But uh, the Democrats are going all out on January 6th today, and it's certainly not to downplay uh, how disturbing and and, and crazy it was last year on, on January 6th. I think some on the right have a tendency to downplay how serious it was, but some on the left certainly have a tendency uh, to overplay. I don't think you and I would argue that it's a coup or an insurrection. It was a riot that got very ugly. Biden's speech today, which he said at the end was designed to unify the country, accused Republicans of uh, voter suppression in the states. And uh, he talked about how awesome the system is that uh, elected him president, but it's got to be radically changed to now protect democracy with the legislation that the Democrats are pushing. He seemed to also lump in everyone who uh, voted to challenge any of the electors with the people who were committing violence outside, which is interesting since the Democrats have challenged every Republican presidential victory since 1988. They did it, obviously, in 2000, George W. Bush. They did it again in 2004. And I think they still believe uh, Donald Trump was illegitimate in 2016. So looks like the Democrats are going all in as their election strategy this year, that if you want to preserve democracy, which Jimmy Carter says is hanging by a thread, you got to stick with the Democrats. I guess that's their only card right now. The first half of the speech is that Americans' democracy is safe. The second half of the speech was America, democracy is hanging by a thread and could disappear unless we get what we want. That's, you know, yeah, good luck. Um, terrible day. I'm glad that the prosecutions are proceeding apace. There's nothing justifiable about it. But I do think that calling it a coup or insurrection is giving it a credibility and a seriousness of purpose that wasn't really there. You know, imagine, you know, God forbid they could have, you know, killed Mike Pence, they could have killed other lawmakers. But beyond that, what would they have done? Like, what was the mechanism in which they were going to keep Donald Trump in office? You know, inevitably, at some point or another, the Capitol Police or National Guard or some forces of law and order and authority were going to clear them from the Capitol and the legislative branch would reconvene and they were going to certify the election results from the Electoral College. And Joe Biden was going to be inaugurated on January 20th, no matter what happened. And I'm kind of, you know, so that by that standard, this was, this was like, you know, the detail that keeps sticking in my mind is the smearing of human feces on the walls of our government. You know, like this, these were, this was anarchy, that there was no grand cause. They were not patriots. They were not standing up for anything, you know, anything noble or anything like that. They literally dressed as barbarians. Let's stop, let's stop treating them as if they were some sort of, serious, coherent, intellectually consistent force that, uh, uh, you know, let, let's treat this, 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 you know, chaotic movement with the derision it deserves. Yeah. And I think you said it best. There was nothing that could have changed that day, given the fact that Democrats controlled the House and it was a 50-50 split in the Senate. Uh, only a handful of Republicans in the Senate were willing to challenge the electors in any state. There was literally no chance of changing anything uh, once the election process got to that point. All the states had uh, certified their results. There was nothing that could have changed that day and uh, to put uh, to put folks in danger was completely unnecessary. But we'll talk more about uh, uh, about that. But Biden's speech today was uh, thoroughly beyond the pale also. So let's talk about our good news. And it, it kind of feeds off of yesterday's bad news, Jim. And 
there's still obviously a bad news element to this, but it's kind of interesting to watch how the Democrats have pivoted on school openings on a dime here uh, because they were in lockstep with the teachers unions for the longest time. Whatever Randy Weingarten wanted, well, darn it, that's what we're going to do. The CDC had to reverse uh, course last year on their recommendations. And then all of a sudden this year, uh, once Chicago started rumbling that its teachers were not going to uh, show up in person, at least until they flattened the curve on Omicron, that now the Democrats are deciding that we have to get kids back in school. So a lot of folks on the left are trying to do this 180 as gracefully as possible. I'm not sure I buy it. I think it's mostly political. But nonetheless, uh, you got Biden doing it. You got Axelrod doing it. You got the mayor of New York trying to do it. Meanwhile, the Chicago teachers, as we said yesterday, uh, they're demanding uh, remote teaching only at this point. Not to be outdone, uh, the New York teachers, despite the mayor's wishes there, are uh, saying that they want to temporarily shutter the schools after uh, the Department of Education recorded more than 12,000 new teacher and student cases on Monday. They're going to be protesting at the Barclays Center. Uh, Actually, they did that yesterday. Meanwhile, out in San Francisco, it's not even the union. The San Francisco Chronicle saying that uh, the teachers... They're not even waiting for the unions to take action. Organized a sick out, uh, and they got all sorts of demands, Jim. They want uh, the union, the city, the state, the federal government to uh, not only invest in seriously addressing the pandemic, but uh, uh, so many other areas that uh, make uh, this pandemic challenging for the public schools. So apparently the $200 billion that's already been allocated for the schools and all these major spending issues on COVID aren't getting it done. So I'm not sure which faction of the Democratic Party is going to win this fight, but it's going to be popcorn popping time. Uh, The only problem is you got innocent kids stuck in the crossfire here. Greg, I just want to clarify that those New York teachers, because they are concerned about an extraordinarily contagious variant of the virus, they all got together in a big group outside the Barclays Center? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That makes sense because it's it's too dangerous to go to the classroom. But quick, everybody come together. Let's pull this together. Bring it in. Bring it in closer. Everybody get together. You know, a lot of handshakes, high fives, deep French kissing. You know, know. Um, look. You know, it is, this is bad for the kids involved. This is bad for those cities. But I think uh, there's only one of two ways this shakes out. Either the elected Democratic leaders in these cities, as well as, you know, in Congress and nationwide, and perhaps the president himself, Biden, like either they recognize that these uh, groups of teachers have no interest in teaching. Somebody made the interesting point. Over in Europe, they opened schools in like late spring 2020. Long before there was a vaccine, long before there was a boosters, long ago, they figured out, okay, we're going to put on masks, we're going to try to space out the kids, we're going to do the best we can, because education really, really matters, and we got to get these kids taught. And, and, you know, here in the United States, a lot of places, at least in my neck of the woods, we schools were out of, you know, we did virtual learning for a whole year, some cases more than that, some cities, it was like closer to 18 months. And then, you know, you know teachers in a lot of states got from pushed to the front of the line for getting shots, they're near the front of the line for getting boosters. Uh, we're now dealing with a milder version uh, of the, the virus, a, a, you know, a, a less virulent variant in Omicron. Now, a lot of people catching it. Heck, yeah. And if a school said, look, we wanted to hold school today, but we've now had, you know, 20 percent of our teachers call in sick or something. We just can't find enough substitutes. We're gonna, you know, if they said, look, we got to close school on Monday, but we're going to try again on Tuesday. OK, that happens. I, I, I look, it's a very contagious variant. If every, if enough people are literally out sick and it's genuinely they're sick and they don't want to come into the school because school they're afraid they could spread it to people, okay, fine. But do it on a school by school basis. 
don't do it on a, well, the whole city wide, we're just deciding not to do this anymore. It's happening in San Francisco. It's happening in Chicago. It's happening in New York. What are These are three of the most, you know, deep blue progressive cities in the country. And they're also some of the biggest cities in the country. And it's, this is clear demonstration, progressive big cities, the schools don't work. Never mind the bad results they tend to generate. In all three places, teachers are saying, we've decided that this mild variant is too threatening and we want to shut them down. We're not, we're not going into school. We refuse to do our jobs. Somebody somewhere has a great you know, Reagan and air traffic controllers moment here. Maybe it's the mayor, maybe it's the superintendent. Whoever's got authority over these teachers can say, look, if you do not show up to do your work, you are doing this in violation. We've established that the health threat is not serious enough. This is not life-threatening. We have all kinds of treatments available. Get your butts into class and do it. Otherwise, we're we're in violation of your contract and you're out of here. You have proven yourself to be a liability to the party, and the party will no longer give you what you want. You know, with carte blanche, um, and give you whatever you know, you're. You're now going to be just another interest group with no more power than anybody else. And in fact, you've heard our reputation, so we're going to have to have. We're going to, you know, it's it's like the old police song, "Don't stand so close to me," which ironically was about a teacher. Uh, don't you know? We're not going to stand by you through thick and thin anymore. You've cost us seats. You co- it probably cost us the Virginia governor's race. And we're not going to let you cost us anymore with the, with the midterms approaching. So Democrats are either going to do that or they wimp out and they knuckle under and they, you know, do what they say because the teachers unions call the shots. And in that case, there's going to be a great opportunity for Republicans next time people go to vote, both in these cities and in general. Because even if you're not affected by this, if you're in, say, a suburban Virginia one <laughs> school district, you're looking at us and saying, boy, I hope my local teachers don't get the same idea. I hope they don't say, oh, I, I don't know. I'm not going to wait. wait why, why should I go and show up to school with this Omicron variant going on um, when I could just as easily, uh, you know, decide to stay if, if, if up in New York, out in San Francisco and in Chicago? They're not working. Why should I work? I mean, this is all theoretical, Greg, because, you know, it snowed and we're on day four of, of snow days here in Fairfax County. <laughs> which ironically was about a teacher. Uh, don't, you know, we're not going to stand by you through thick and thin anymore. You've cost us seats. You co- it probably cost us the Virginia governor's race. And we're not going to let you cost us anymore with the, with the midterms approaching. So that's one possibility. You know, so you know, it's, I don't think it'd be game, or the Democrats do, you know, do decide, ah, we got to give them what they want. And it turns into an even bigger, you know, more, uh, an even redder tsunami come November of this year. You know, the police really should have made up their mind. On the one hand, they don't want you standing so close to them. On the other hand, they're watching every breath you take and every move you make. I mean, well, it was it was COVID preparation, Greg. <laughs> don't stand so close to me, but I'm watching you all the time. <laughs> every breath you take because you're exhaling the virus. A little schizophrenic there, I think, though, on the part of Sting. No wonder he ended up going solo. Maybe he didn't want to stand so close to the rest of the band. Jim, or, I- <laughs> it's about a, you know, a teacher and a girl. He's running away from the rest of the police. Exactly. It's the hot music takes from the 1980s, like just like yesterday. But uh, anyway, as you watch all of this play out, Jim, on this and many other issues, you get to do all of it from the comfort of your ex chair. You know, dear listeners, I love my work, but sometimes I, or at least I used to dread sitting down at my desk uh, before I got my ex chair. But now, thanks to my ex chair, I look forward to sitting in my office because my body feels so much more supported and comfortable. And more comfort means more productivity, helping my ex-chair pay for itself thanks to how much more work I'm getting done each day. And if I'm feeling tight or stressed, I just turn on the Elamax massage feature and choose from four different massage options. If my home office is a little too hot or a little too cold, I just flip on the Elamax temperature regulation and either heat or cool my lower back. And once you feel the customized support of the ex-chair's patent dynamic variable lumbar, 
or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Take my advice, try the X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. And once you realize just how much better your chair should be, you will never go pack, I promise. Just go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. One more time, xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim, let's talk about our bad martini today officially. And this is one that surprisingly hasn't gotten more attention, but it's an international story. And as we talked about at the top today, we know what the media is entirely focused on today. But uh, this is a story out of Central Asia, and the issue is Kazakhstan, the former Soviet Republic. There were massive protests there over the uh, major fuel price hike, just like we've seen everywhere else, but I think it's even more severe there. Uh, And as a result, Kazakhstan's government basically resigned and called on Moscow for support through what's known as the Collective Security Treaty Organization. It's basically uh, the NATO of former Soviet Socialist Republics. First time they've ever used it, it was ostensibly meant to uh, protect these uh, countries from invasion by other countries, not put down their own people. Uh, Allegedly, dozens of demonstrators were killed. We don't have a a full number on that. Uh, Some police perhaps as well. So, uh, Jim, Kazakhstan's not exactly a place where we spend a lot of time focusing, but uh, as Russia gets a a little trigger happy in a lot of other places, namely Crimea, well, they didn't actually have to pull a trigger there, but uh, Ukraine, and I know the Baltic states aren't exactly uh, resting easy these days, uh, this example from Moscow uh, ought to leave us pretty concerned as well. Yeah. I mean, if you ask most Americans about Kazakhstan, the, the, you know, main, you know, you you get a few Borat jokes and that's about it. (laughs) Look, they're in Central Asia. They are enormously uh, uh, rich with natural gas and oil, one of the, you know, energy producing countries of the world. And you could see, you know, know, geographically right next to Russia and Russia would like to maximize its influence over that country. Um, And if you want to say to, you know, if you want to say, look, the U.S. has limited national interests over there, it's always been close to Russia, fine. Okay, but like, let's let's observe what, you know, what kind of signal gets sent to the world when a pro-Russian government has this uh, protest against it and Russian troops land to help the government suppress dissent at protests and allegedly killing dozens of demonstrators, according to the reports out there. What, what does that look like? That looks like the real, you know, either Russia has a whole bunch of client states that are basically, uh, Russia is the bodyguard of a whole bunch of, of you know, vassal states surrounding it. You know, people have argued about whether uh, Vladimir Putin wants to reestablish either the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union in some form. The, this vision of greater Russia that in addition to being, you know, having its already, you know, massive territories, it wants to have be surrounded by all of these buffer states. Long memories. They remember Napoleon. They remember Hitler. They remember all these folks who are trying to do this. Now, look, if you want to say this is Central Asia, the U.S. is very far from this and this you know, fine. OK, you want to make that argument. But this is all happening in the context of Ukraine, and I cannot help but notice, uh, Greg, that for a good four or five years, we were told by the Democratic Party that Vladimir Putin was one of the greatest threats on earth, and that they were absolutely furious with him, and we were furious about Trump for not standing up to him enough, and it was time for Americans to really stand up to Russia, and this Russian aggression, this will not stand, and now Russia's sending troops into another country, and nobody doesn't seem to be paying any much attention to it, which makes me think that all of that, you know, fuming and raging and anger at Vladimir Putin 
that I look, I've always been on board with that. I'm a Cold War kid. I'm never going to trust the, the Russians all that much. But if you want to, you know, I my sneaking suspicion the whole time during the Trump years was the Democrats, Democrats weren't really angry at uh, Donald Trump because he had ties to Vladimir Putin. Democrats were angry at Vladimir Putin because he had ties to President Trump. Um, that in the end, it was the, you know, the role in domestic politics that bothered them. And they, you know, they certainly had never gotten upset about the takeover of Crimea. They had never gotten upset about the Russian-backed forces shooting down a passenger airliner. In the end, most Democrats, I think, at heart are isolationists. They don't really want to deal with the rest of the world other than, you know, attend summits and have happy talk and we'll all, you know, work together on climate change and things like that. Actually standing up to aggression. Well, look, that's, that's risky. That's scary. That's frightening. That's, you know, no, no, let's, let's all talk this out. So look, maybe what happens in Kazakhstan is not going to have much of an influence on the rest of the world, but it is happening in the context of this burgeoning building potential crisis in Ukraine and the fact that we're hearing very little about from this administration and this little response at all does not make anybody in Eastern Europe feel confident and it really shouldn't. In the end, a lot of the anti, you know, tough on Russia rhetoric we heard over the last couple of years was entirely window dressing. It was entirely in the context of we're really angry at, at Donald Trump. It has nothing. They, in the end, Democrats are fundamentally isolationist and they're giving, if not, if not a, a clear green light to Vladimir Putin, then they're mostly averting their eyes and yawning and focusing on other topics. Yeah, and I fear that this could be an explanation, a flimsy and false explanation for future Russian action in some of those other places we mentioned, because their argument here can be, look, a friend asked for help, so we offered him help. What else could we do? I mean, we want to be a good neighbor. We like these people. We're, we're neighbors and we, we get along well. Uh, but he could say the same thing in Belarus, because I know he loves the president there. Uh, there were a lot of uprisings there. Didn't send troops in, but I, I can imagine him using the same argument. Uh, and even though the leadership in the Baltic states and Ukraine uh, certainly don't want Moscow inside their borders. They could uh, claim that there's, uh, you know, pockets of Russians who uh, feel oppressed and they had to respond to them. So uh, just curious to see whether this becomes a, a frequent excuse for uh, Russian intervention. Hopefully it's a, a one-time situation. Hopefully they're gone soon and we don't see another example of it. But something tells me this is a little bit of a dry run. To say anybody who's studied warfare in the past century knows this very familiar playbook. My ethnic brethren are being oppressed over that border. Yep. I have no choice but to come to their rescue with a blitzkrieg movement. Very familiar movement by uh, expansionist-minded authoritarian regimes and dictators. All right. Well, uh, again, hopefully it's uh, a, a one and done, but uh, the, the damage to the people inside Kazakhstan uh, has already been done, and we'll see how long they stay there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, as you wait to see what the Russians do next, uh, get your rest, because I think they're going to have a busy year along with the Chinese. So for that, get your my pillow, get some good sheets like the Giza Dream Sheets, have good towels and have comfortable feet with their slippers, and on and on and on. The good products from my pillow uh, are also not subject to the recent supply chain issues. They've got everything in stock, no back orders, and no delayed shipping for any of their line. The MyPillow is made 100% right here in the United States, and they've built a huge inventory to ensure that their customers get what they need when they need it. MyPillow has full stock of all items on their website. Everything from the MyPillows at their lowest price ever, to the sheets, to the slippers, to the robes, and now the cardigans. All in stock, all ready to ship fast. MyPillow is your one-stop shop where you can shop with confidence. And all MyPillow products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. 
Fantastic products all the way around. And if you want to get yours at a great price, go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials. Four specials like buy one, get one on the Giza Dream Sheets or the lowest price ever on the MyPillow premiums when you use the promo code MARTINI. Or call 800-874-0104. Don't miss this sale of the year. That's MyPillow.com, promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. Sleep better with MyPillow.com. All right, Jim, back to uh, January 6th and technically January 5th, according to uh, surveillance footage of last year. Um, There is a figure on that surveillance tape placing bombs at the Republican National Committee headquarters and the Democratic National Committee headquarters, which are not that far apart from each other. Uh, Geographically, ideologically, it's a different story, of course. And so far, this appears to be you know, perhaps the greatest uh, threat of all from that 24-hour period. Yet, uh, for all the arrests uh, we have from uh, what happened at the Capitol the next day, uh, we've got nothing, apparently, on this guy. Why not? That's a terrific question there, Greg. And let me observe, like, whatever you think of the protesters, the president, or the 24 election, I think we'd all agree, you're not supposed to leave pipe bombs, people, anywhere. You're, you know, this is somebody who did, that is terrorism. That is an attempt to kill people. And uh, you kind of figure that of all the acts that happened that day, they just have to rank among the most serious. Thankfully, they didn't go off, although the FBI has said that they had black powder in them, that they were capable of being detonated, that they were uh, potentially dangerous. This was not just somebody taking an alarm, alarm clock and some pipes with, with nothing explosive. These things could have killed people, and thankfully they didn't. Uh, shortly after the, around February or so, the former head of the U.S. Capitol Police said that he believed the pipe bombs were there as meant as a distraction, meant to draw away U.S. Capitol Police resources from Capitol Hill, the Capitol building, away towards the party headquarters. Um, and that's uh, certainly a, a reasonable enough theory. Uh, the fact that, and so his, his thing that this is part of a coordinated action. The thing is, though, I look and, and I point out, I don't know who did it. Uh, there's only you know competing theories here. If you had more than one person, you kind of wonder if the person, the people who the, the bombers partners, uh, accomplices would have given this bomber up by the note. By the way, these, the, you know, judging from the videos and the pictures, you'd guess the person is male, but they said that they're not still not 100% uh, certain of this. They're wearing a hoodie, um, they have you know, uh, a, a mask on. Um, you know, they, they think you know, they wear gloves, uh, very distinctive Nike sneakers, but otherwise they have no idea, even, you know, and nothing, you know, the FBI can determine nothing about this bomber. Um, one of the really interesting things I've, I've, you know, dig into this both for, you know, sheer interest and the, uh, the writing, the thriller, thriller novels, people who build bombs tradition, traditionally have a signature and it's almost like subconscious. They just had this way that they've decided is the best way to build a bomb. And from this, you can kind of figure out you know, where did they learn it from? Who was their teacher? Where was that? You know, there's only a certain number of ways you can do this. So you kind of, that's usually a clue that usually helps point the, the investigators in a certain, in the right direction. The fact that it's a year later and they don't have any leads and the, several times over the course of the year, they've asked the public for more help and for more help. And uh, the latest uh, talk is that they're analyzing the video to do what they call as gait analysis, G-A-I-T, meaning that the way you walk uh, can be analyzed through computers to kind of match it from one person to another. Now, somebody have had the observation, if they're working on that, that means studying the bomb didn't really tell them anything useful or distinctive. So if this person had accomplished 
reasons. Well, if they're a non-criminal accomplice, there's a $100,000 reward, and this person still hasn't come forward and given any information on that. If they're a criminal accomplice, you figure of these 725 people who've been arrested and charged with crimes in connection to January 6th. Let's say you're sitting there, you're looking at a fairly serious prison sentence, and you know who planted those bombs, you figure that'd be really useful information to trade to get a much lesser sentence. There's no indication that that has come forward. So I look at all that and I suspect that the perpetrator of this was working alone. I don't, I don't know it, but I just look at that and I figure if they had accomplices, one way or another, they feel a need to do that. The other thing which I think is kind of interesting and curious about that is we have no indication that this person struck at any previous event, and we have no indication that this person struck at any subsequent event. This was a one-off. So I, you know, look, this could be somebody out there. They could be kind of chuckling to themselves. They could be uh, convinced they got away with it or something like that. And at this point, a year later, it's certainly, you know, uh, we took a long time to catch the Unabomber, took a long time to catch the Olympic Park bomber, Eric Rudolph. Um, it's possible that at some point someone will see something, remember something, uh, some other clue or avenue of investigation will open up. And they will eventually catch the perpetrator. The theory, as I was reading all this, I came up with, and again, it's just a theory. I, I have no idea if this is true or not, but the fact that nothing's happened since makes me wonder, Greg, if the perpetrator is actually one of those more than 725 people who've already been arrested. Very tough to find the suspect out there walking the streets if you already have him in custody. And so in other words, the idea is that the law enforcement has this person in custody and they've charged him on something else. They, you know, set the bombs, then went off and participated in the January 6th riot in some other capacity ended up getting arrested and nothing's been found to tie that particular perpetrator to the placing of these pipe bombs uh, on that. So that's you know, the state of the investigation as of this morning. I think if you think about it, you get this reminder, um, you're kind of left with this kind of, you know, this bizarre head scratching and somewhat unnerving realization that, look, this is Capitol Hill. There are security you know, cameras everywhere. You'd like to think this is one of the more secure sites in the entire country. And yet somehow, no, not only not no arrest, no real strong leads, it sounds like. No suspects. No good avenues of investigation to figure out who this is. So uh, I hope they find this person. Uh, I think it's one of the more fascinating and really perhaps even troubling uh, unresolved questions of January 6th. And one that I think is kind of fascinating also that it got relatively forgotten compared to all the other vivid scenes that we saw on our television screens a year ago. We'll find out uh, if there are any developments in this case, but uh, there certainly haven't been since that day. But uh, Jim, uh, the Democrats will still be talking about January 6th in perpetuity here. Uh, I assume we'll have some other issues to talk about tomorrow. But uh, until then, have a good one. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, do be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Also, uh, please tell your friends about us. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Remember, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave Leave a comment or review and subscribe.